And as we stand, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us. Your word is like good seed. Help me to be clear and true in preaching from your word. Give us all open and honest hearts to hear and believe what you say through it, minds to hold on to it, and perseverance in obeying it, so that it will bear fruit to your glory. Amen. Please do sit down. On recent Sunday mornings, we've been considering the life of Abraham, or Abraham as he was first called, and I may wander between the two different names, forgive me for that, and also looking at the roots of our Christian faith. This week we come to Genesis chapter 15, which is on page 15 of your Bibles, a hugely significant chapter according to New Testament writers for two reasons. Firstly, its key verse, verse 6, declares that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham was justified by faith, a phrase which is at the heart of our Christian gospel. And secondly, it records how God made a covenant with Abraham based on grace, not on law, which shows us some absolutely amazing things about God and what he has done. Last week in chapter 14, Alan helped us to see the ongoing faith of Abraham as he went to war against the Macedonian kings in order to rescue his nephew Lot. And despite his relatively minuscule group of 318 trained men defeated them. On his return, Abraham is met by Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a prophet, who blesses Abraham in the name of God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Abraham had faced fear in battle with the Macedonian kings, but now he faces fear of quite a different kind as he comes face to face with God Most High in a vision. God tells him not to be afraid. Why? Because God is his protector and his shield. But more than that, he is his sovereign king. The New International Version um, footnote to the word shield can also be translated sovereign. So Abraham had known God's protection, his shield. He'd also refused to accept any spoils of war from the king of Sodom in order not to be obligated to anyone but God because God was his sovereign king, his only God. He neither needed nor wanted the spoils of war because it was God himself that was his greatest treasure. You know, it made me think, I wonder if I could say that. If my house burnt down, or if it collapsed in an earthquake, like people have experienced in New Zealand, and I had nothing left, could I still say, God himself was my greatest treasure? God comes to Abraham in this vision, saying, don't be afraid, I'm your protector, your sovereign, 
and I'm offering you a humongous reward beyond your wildest dreams because you've served me. A reward? But Abraham's already very wealthy. What would he do with more herds and flocks? And who would inherit his estate anyway? Only his trusted servant, Eleazar. For God had not given him any children. Just imagine that twist in his heart just then as he was reminded of that incompleteness in his life without children, particularly in his era and culture. His deep longing was for a son, an heir. And then God speaks words to Abram which he would never forget. This man, Eleazar, will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. This was God's amazing promise to Abraham. He was already 75 years old, but God would still bless him with his own natural son, who would be his heir and the father of a great nation. Can you imagine the scene? God takes Abraham outside his tent and tells him to look up at the night sky, at the myriad array of stars, and to count them if he could. Can he? Of course he can't. No night pollution, light pollution there. How many offspring will he have? Countless, innumerable descendants. What a promise. So Abraham now had two everyday reminders of what God was going to do for him. In chapter 13, he's already promised him something. So as he walks the hills during the day and the dust of the ground gets in between his toes, he could remember that God had already promised him that his offspring would be like the dust of the earth. And now, secondly, as he sits perhaps outside his tent after supper in the evenings, he could look up at the night sky, see the innumerable numbers of stars and recall God's pr promise to him. I think it's great when God gives us signs and symbols from, to remind us of his words and his promises. Obviously the most valuable Christian symbol we have is that of the cross, reminding us of all that Jesus has done for us. For Julian of Norwich, the hazelnut was important. It reminded her of God's words. And for me, it's a butterfly. Symbols can help us to persevere in our faith or to wait for the fulfillment of a promise. Abraham, too, was going to need those everyday promises and reminders of God's promise to him, as he was going to have to wait another 25 years before Isaac was born. And waiting isn't easy, is it? And so we come to that key verse, verse 6, which must apply to the promise already given, but also the promise that is to come. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. We're just going to look at that briefly. You may like to keep your finger in Genesis 15 
and to turn to Romans 4, verse 18. Because this is one of the passages that comments on God's promise to Abraham and Abraham's response to God. Romans 4 is on page 1131. It says here that Abraham believed against all hope and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. Against all hope. So first we learn he didn't waver. His faith wasn't weakened through unbelief. And secondly, as he faced the facts, his faith was strengthened. How? Because his faith was in the faithfulness of God. And having put his faith in God, God actively strengthened it. Abraham knew absolutely that God, the Most High, had power to do what he had promised. Abraham believed in the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. It wasn't the extent of Abraham's faith that made him righteous. It wasn't that he had a great, great faith. But his trust was in the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. And this enabled God to work and the promises to be fulfilled. So in essence, Abraham's faith furthered his relationship with God. God credited him with righteousness so that a relationship with a holy, awesome God was actually made possible. Abraham's faith and God's righteousness were bound together, enabling them to move on together. Because of his faith, Abraham had a future and a hope. And in this way, Abraham was to become the father of all who believe. And that's where we come in. Romans 4.23 says, the words it was credited to him, Abraham, were written not for him alone, but also for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. We're all called to follow in Abraham's footsteps in our faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus died to pay the punishment for our sins on the cross and that God's mighty power raised him from the dead so that we who believe in Jesus will be counted as if we are righteous before God and we will be given the gift of eternal life. Humanly speaking, we can do nothing. God has done everything. It's all God's pure grace. In this way, Paul says in Galatians 3, God has announced the gospel, the good news of God's salvation, in advance to Abraham, adding, all nations will be blessed through you, So those who have faith in Jesus will be blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith, and our true spiritual descendants of Abraham. But in returning to Genesis 15, the vision isn't over yet. There's more. 
And God goes on to make another momentous promise to Abraham and then to make this covenant with him. There's much of a significance here to look at. God's promise is that Abraham's descendants will possess the land. God reminds Abraham that this journey he's on was initiated by God himself. It wasn't Abraham's idea to leave Ur and to set out. It was God's idea. And God's specific purpose for Abraham to come to Canaan was for him to take possession of the land. He didn't possess it yet. And then God goes on to tell him that actually they won't, his descendants won't possess it for another 400 years. But it was God's intention that they would, and his promise. There was going to be much to conquer and take control over. It was a big ask. Abraham had believed God that he was going to have his own son. But now he finds he needs to ask for a guarantee of the promise of the land. So he says in verse 8, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? And God's response was to make this covenant with Abraham. So what is a covenant? Are there different sorts of covenant? Yes, there are. There can be a covenant between nations, a treaty, an alliance of friendship. There can be a covenant between individuals, which is a pledge or an agreement which involves some form of obligation between the two people. But a covenant between God and man is different. And I found this very interesting. It's not quite what you might think. It's not a contract between two people or between groups of people. In fact, it's not a bilateral agreement at all. It's a unilateral, one-sided, God-divine promise. It's something entirely conceived and established by God himself. It's unilateral, It's a God promise. So as a working definition, and on the screen, we'll put God's covenant is a sovereign dispensing of grace on God's part, accompanied by signs and sacrifices, and a solemn oath that seals the promises of blessing. This rises purely from the action of God a sovereign dispensing of grace on God's part. The first time a covenant, um, this term covenant occurs in scripture is in Genesis 5, where God tells Noah he's going to flood the whole earth and everything on earth will perish. God promises to save Noah purely through his grace. All Noah had to do was to follow God's instructions in order to take this opportunity to save his family and a specified number of animals. And after the flood, we read in Genesis chapter 9 how God further re-establishes his covenant with Noah, promising never to flood the whole earth again, and by giving him 
a covenant sign, which you all know was the rainbow. So that every time Noah saw the rainbow, he would remember God's promise. I'm not going to flood the whole world again. And so the generations after him would also remember. So how about this covenant with Abraham? The essential features of God's covenant with Abraham are much the same, but there's a lot more to do about grace. God's covenant with Abraham is first, as I said, unilateral. It's conceived and established by God himself. It's God's idea and God's action. Secondly, it's universal in its scope. It embraces not over, over it embraces not only Abraham's descendants but everyone. And the width and the scope of that actually demonstrates the the, the tremendous grace of God. And this universal covenant isn't dependent on human understanding or even a favorable response. It's just given by God, purely by grace. Thirdly, it's unconditional. It's given freely, without conditions, so there's no possibility of it being broken. However, any relationship demands obligations, and there may be some obligations that that arise in response to that particular relationship. And fourthly, God's covenant is ongoing and everlasting. It's perpetual. Once given, it lasts from generation to generation. And the sign given is a reminder of the faithfulness of God and his promises. Like the rainbow, the sign couldn't be controlled or or engineered by men. Noah was given the rainbow. One of the signs given to Abraham were the stars. He had no control over the number of stars or the amount of dust on the ground. So to summarize the covenant in my own words, I put it like this. God's covenant is a sovereign giving out of grace and patience, which comes from God, which is opened up by God, confirmed by God, and fulfilled by God. God's covenant with Abraham is very symbolic. We read in chapter 15... God's instructions to Abraham, from verse 9. God instructs Abraham to take three, certain three-year-old animals and some birds and to cut them in half, laying them, um, each of the halves opposite each other. And it would seem that Abraham's preparations um, happened during the daytime and that perhaps his vision was in two parts, At nightfall, Abraham falls into a deep sleep and is surrounded by this terrifying darkness. He sees a smoking brazier 
with a blazing torch which symbolized God passing along the pieces of the slaughtered animals. It was God's presence walking among the pieces which solemnized and ratified this covenant. This practice in those days was also signified a self-maledictory oath which said, may it be done to me if I don't keep my oath and pledge. May I be cut in half if I don't um, keep my oath and pledge. So the Lord made this prom- um, a covenant of promise with Abraham. He gave him this sign to confirm and to seal his promise that one day Abraham's descendants would possess all the land from the Nile to the Euphrates, a tremendous area of land. And ten groups of people are mentioned, which itself signifies something of completeness. One thing we need to remember is that covenants God makes with us never come cheap. They involve sacrifice and the shedding of blood. In Scripture, God's covenants with men are always the sovereign outgoings of redemptive grace and promise. And beginning with Abraham, we see the unfolding of God's plan of salvation. God's covenants with Israel get richer and richer as he fulfills his plan of salvation. And they are, of course, most fully realized with Jesus Christ. So this covenant of promise and grace which God made with Abraham is a wonderful picture of what Jesus is going to do by his self-giving death on the cross. His body would be broken, his blood shed, so that anyone in the whole world could enter into a new relationship with God, hear God's promises, and enjoy God's presence forever. So in conclusion, what do we take from this account of God's covenant with Abraham? Abraham believed the promises of God. God declared him set right with God and gave him a future and a hope. He confirmed the signs, his promises with a sign and a covenant. It was God's initiative, given freely, pure grace. God still does the same for us today as we place our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. To believe or not to believe, that's your decision. Let's pray. Lord God, you are an amazing God. You abound in love and grace. And as we see the beginning of your plan of salvation in this story and account of Abraham and his life, help us to put our faith in you today, tomorrow, and in the weeks to come. 
and to know that you are a faithful God who keeps his promises till the end of time. Amen.